File 55 of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sharon Riskadal. Appendix There is nothing I would more willingly lay hold of than an opportunity of confessing my errors, and should esteem such a return to truth and reason to be more honorable than the most unerring judgment. A man who is free from mistakes can pretend to no praises, except from the justness of his understanding. But a man who corrects his mistakes shows at once the justness of his understanding and the candor and ingenuity of his temper. I have not yet been so fortunate as to discover any very considerable mistakes in the reasonings delivered in the preceding volumes, except on one article— but I have found by experience that some of my expressions have not been so well chosen as to guard against all mistakes in the readers, and it is chiefly to remedy this defect I have subjoined the following appendix. We can never be induced to believe any matter of fact except where its cause or its effect is present to us. But what the nature is of that belief, which arises from the relation of cause and effect, few have had the curiosity to ask themselves. In my opinion, this dilemma is inevitable. Either the belief is some new idea, such as that of reality or existence, which we join to the simple conception of an object, or it is merely a peculiar feeling or sentiment. That it is not a new idea annexed to the simple conception may be evinced from these two arguments. First, we have no abstract idea of existence, distinguishable and separable from the idea of particular objects. It is impossible, therefore, that this idea of existence can be annexed to the idea of any object or form the difference betwixt a simple conception and belief. Secondly, the mind has the command over all its ideas, and can separate, unite, mix, and vary them as it pleases, so that if belief consisted merely in a new idea, annexed to the conception, it would be in a man's power to believe what he pleased. We may therefore conclude that belief consists merely in a certain feeling or sentiment, in something that depends not on the will, but must arise from certain determinate causes and principles of which we are not masters. When we are convinced of any matter of fact, we do nothing but conceive it, along with a certain feeling, different from what attends the mere reveries of the imagination. And when we express our incredulity concerning any fact, we mean that the arguments for the fact produce not that feeling. Did not the belief consist in a sentiment different from our mere conception, whatever objects were presented by the wildest imagination would be on an equal footing with the most established truths founded on history and experience. There is nothing but the feeling or sentiment to distinguish the one from the other. This, therefore, being regarded as an undoubted truth, that belief is nothing but a peculiar feeling, different from the simple conception, the next question that naturally occurs is, what is the nature of this feeling or sentiment, and whether it be analogous to any other sentiment of the human mind? This question is important. 
for if it be not analogous to any other sentiment, we must despair of explaining its causes, and must consider it as an original principle of the human mind. If it be analogous, we may hope to explain its causes from analogy, and trace it up to more general principles. Now that there is a greater firmness and solidity in the conceptions, which are the objects of conviction and assurance, than in the loose and indolent reveries of a castle-builder, every one will readily own. They strike upon us with more force, they are more present to us, the mind has a firmer hold of them, and is more actuated and moved by them. It acquiesces in them, and, in a manner, fixes and reposes itself on them. In short, they approach nearer to the impressions which are immediately present to us, and are therefore analogous to many other operations of the mind. There is not, in my opinion, any possibility of evading this conclusion, but by asserting that belief, beside the simple conception, consists in some impression or feeling distinguishable from the conception. It does not modify the conception and render it more present and intense. It is only annexed to it after the same manner that will and desire are annexed to particular conceptions of good and pleasure. But the following considerations will, I hope, be sufficient to remove this hypothesis. First, it is directly contrary to experience and our immediate consciousness. All men have ever allowed reasoning to be merely an operation of our thoughts or ideas, and however those ideas may be varied to the feeling, there is nothing ever enters into our conclusions but ideas or our fainter conceptions. For instance, I hear at present a person's voice whom I am acquainted with, and this sound comes from the next room. This impression of my senses immediately conveys my thoughts to the person, along with all the surrounding objects. I paint them out to myself as existent at present, with the same qualities and relations that I formerly knew them possessed of. These ideas take faster hold of my mind than the ideas of an enchanted castle. They are different to the feeling but there is no distinct or separate impression attending them. It is the same case when I recollect the several incidents of a journey or the events of any history. Every particular fact is there the object of belief. Its idea is modified differently from the loose reveries of a castle builder. But no distinct impression attends every distinct idea or conception of matter-of-fact. This is the subject of plain experience. If ever this experience can be disputed on any occasion, it is when the mind has been agitated with doubts and difficulties, and afterwards, upon taking the object in a new point of view, or being presented with a new argument, fixes and reposes itself in one settled conclusion and belief. In this case, there is a feeling distinct and separate from the conception. The passage from doubt and agitation to tranquillity and repose conveys a satisfaction and pleasure to the mind. But take any other case. Suppose I see the legs and thighs of a person in motion, while some interposed object conceals the rest of his body. Here it is certain the imagination spreads out the whole figure. I give him a head and shoulders and breast and neck. 
these members I conceive and believe him to be possessed of. Nothing can be more evident than that this whole operation is performed by the thought or imagination alone. The transition is immediate. The ideas presently strike us. Their customary connection with the present impression varies them and modifies them in a certain manner, but produces no act of the mind distinct from this peculiarity of conception. Let anyone examine his own mind, and he will evidently find this to be the truth. Secondly, whatever may be the case with regard to this distinct impression, it must be allowed that the mind has a firmer hold or more steady conception of what it takes to be matter of fact than of fictions. Why then look any farther or multiply suppositions without necessity? Thirdly, we can explain the causes of the firm conception, but not those of any separate impression. And not only so, but the causes of the firm conception exhaust the whole subject, and nothing is left to produce any other effect. An inference concerning a matter of fact is nothing but the idea of an object that is frequently conjoined, or is associated with a present impression. This is the whole of it. Every part is requisite to explain, from analogy, the more steady conception, and nothing remains capable of producing any distinct impression. Fourthly, the effects of belief in influencing the passions and imagination can all be explained from the firm conception, and there is no occasion to have recourse to any other principle. These arguments, with many others, enumerated in the foregoing volumes, sufficiently prove that belief only modifies the idea or conception, and renders it different to the feeling without producing any distinct impression. Thus, upon a general view of the subject, there appear to be two questions of importance which we may venture to recommend to the consideration of philosophers whether there be anything to distinguish belief from the simple conception beside the feeling or sentiment, and whether this feeling be anything but a firmer conception or a faster hold that we take of the object. If upon impartial inquiry the same conclusion that I have formed be assented to by philosophers, the next business is to examine the analogy which there is betwixt belief and other acts of the mind, and find the cause of the firmness and strength of conception, and this I do not esteem a difficult task. The transition from a present impression always enlivens and strengthens any idea. When any object is presented, the idea of its usual attendant immediately strikes us as something real and solid. It is felt rather than conceived, and approaches the impression from which it is derived in its force and influence. This I have proved at large. I cannot add any new arguments. I had entertained some hopes that, however deficient our theory of the intellectual world might be, it would be free from those contradictions and absurdities which seem to attend every explication that human reason can give of the material world. But upon a more strict review of the section concerning personal identity, I find myself involved in such a labyrinth that, I must confess, I neither know how to correct my former opinions, nor how to render them consistent. 
if this be not a good general reason for skepticism it is at least a sufficient one if i were not already abundantly supplied for me to entertain a diffidence and modesty in all my decisions i shall propose the arguments on both sides beginning with those that induced me to deny the strict and proper identity and simplicity of a self or thinking being when we talk of self or substance we must have an idea annexed to these terms otherwise they are altogether unintelligible every idea is derived from preceding impressions and we have no impression of self or substance as something simple and individual we have therefore no idea of them in that sense whatever is distinct is distinguishable and whatever is distinguishable is separable by the thought or imagination all perceptions are distinct they are therefore distinguishable and separable and may be conceived as separately existent and may exist separately without any contradiction or absurdity when i view this table and that chimney nothing is present to me but particular perceptions which are of a like nature with all the other perceptions this is the doctrine of philosophers but this table which is present to me and that chimney may and do exist separately this is the doctrine of the vulgar and implies no contradiction there is no contradiction therefore in extending the same doctrine to all the perceptions in general the following reasoning seems satisfactory all ideas are borrowed from preceding perceptions our ideas of objects therefore are derived from that source consequently no proposition can be intelligible or consistent with regard to objects which is not so with regard to perceptions but it is intelligible and consistent to say that objects exist distinct and independent without any common simple substance or subject of inhesion this proposition therefore can never be absurd with regard to perceptions when i turn my reflection on myself i never can perceive this self without some one or more perceptions nor can i ever perceive anything but the perceptions it is the composition of these therefore which forms the self we can conceive a thinking being to have either many or few perceptions suppose the mind to be reduced even below the life of an oyster suppose it to have only one perception as of thirst or hunger consider it in that situation do you conceive anything but merely that perception have you any notion of self or substance if not the addition of other perceptions can never give you that notion the annihilation which some people suppose to follow upon death and which entirely destroys this self is nothing but an extinction of all particular perceptions love and hatred pain and pleasure thought and sensation these therefore must be the same with self since the one cannot survive the other is self the same with substance if it be how can that question have place concerning the subsistence of self under a change of substance if they be distinct what is the difference betwixt them for my part 
I have a notion of neither, when conceived distinct from particular perceptions. Philosophers begin to be reconciled to the principle that we have no idea of external substance distinct from the ideas of particular qualities. This must pave the way for a like principle with regard to the mind, that we have no notion of it distinct from the particular perceptions. So far I seem to be attended with sufficient evidence. But having thus loosened all our particular perceptions, when I proceed to explain the principle of connection, which binds them together, and makes us attribute to them a real simplicity and identity, I am sensible that my account is very defective, and that nothing but the seeming evidence of the precedent reasonings could have induced me to receive it. If perceptions are distinct existences, they form a whole only by being connected together. But no connections among distinct existences are ever discoverable by human understanding. We only feel a connection or determination of the thought to pass from one object to another. It follows, therefore, that the thought alone finds personal identity when reflecting on the train of past perceptions that compose a mind. The ideas of them are felt to be connected together and naturally introduce each other. However extraordinary this conclusion may seem, it need not surprise us. Most philosophers seem inclined to think that personal identity arises from consciousness, and consciousness is nothing but a reflected thought or perception. The present philosophy, therefore, has so far a promising aspect, but all my hopes vanish when I come to explain the principles that unite our successive perceptions in our thought or consciousness. I cannot discover any theory which gives me satisfaction on this head. In short, there are two principles which I cannot render consistent, nor is it in my power to renounce either of them, that is, that all our distinct perceptions are distinct existences and that the mind never perceives any real connection among distinct existences. Did our perceptions either inhere in something simple and individual, or did the mind perceive some real connection among them, there would be no difficulty in the case. For my part, I must plead the privilege of a skeptic, and confess that this difficulty is too hard for my understanding. I pretend not, however, to pronounce it absolutely insuperable. Others, perhaps, or myself, upon more mature reflections, may discover some hypothesis that will reconcile those contradictions. I shall also take this opportunity of confessing two other errors of less importance, which more mature reflection has discovered to me in my reasoning. The first may be found in Volume 1, page 106, where I say that the distance betwixt two bodies is known, among other things, by the angles which the rays of light flowing from the bodies make with each other. It is certain that these angles are not known to the mind, and consequently can never discover the distance. The second error may be found in Volume 1, page 144, where I say that two ideas of the same object can only be different by their different degrees of force and vivacity. I believe there are other differences among ideas which cannot properly be comprehended under these terms. 
had I said the two ideas of the same object can only be different by their different feeling, I should have been nearer the truth. End of file 55. End of appendix. End of volume 2. End of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume.